So good to be with you. Love you guys. Love this ministry. Love Matt and Ben and everybody else. So it's always an honor to come. And, and, uh, and I'm excited about this series that you're in. Good for you. I think it is, it is good. Uh, this is something that, you know, the study of, of last things is, is something that most people don't give themselves to or some get really over-fascinated by. Uh, there's no kind of middle ground, um, which I think is uh, a necessary a necessary place to land. I, I think there are some things when it comes to the topic of end times, last things more specifically, we have to approach humbly, graciously. We shouldn't divide over them, but we should give ourselves to them. And, and so good for you for doing this. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. It's the last one, so you'll be able to find it very easily. And what I've been asked to do is to walk through what some suggest is perhaps Revelation's most difficult and debated text, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. It's one that introduces us to something called the millennium. Uh, the word millennium comes from the Latin, uh, which is uh, a reference to Revelation 20's uh, six references to a thousand-year period of time. So let's read the text. Uh, we'll give you some introductory comments. I'll share some offerings, and then you can go home and eat meat. Great. All right. Uh, verses 1 to 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So there's the millennium. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Keep that phrase for a little while in mind. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you're starting to get a picture of what this millennium is. It's a time where Jesus is reigning with the saints. Satan has been bound couple more verses. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand, a thousand years. As some of you know, and, and perhaps many of you know, I don't know, and those who are looking online, there are various views on the millennium. Let me give you the three most prominent. We'll put a, a, a slide up so you can look at them. There is the premillennial view. What, what this is, this view holds that Jesus returns before, pre, this thousand-year period of time. Now, there are those in this camp who hold to a literal view of the a thousand years and those who hold to a symbolic view of the thousand years. And then there is another camp called the post-millennials. The post-millennial view holds, and you can figure this out, I'm sure, on your own, that Jesus comes back after the millennium, post-millennium. So how does the millennium come, into be, come to be? It, it comes by way of the church. That there's this outpouring of the gospel, this pouring out of the spirit. There's this wonderful, wonderful time where the gospel goes to all the nations. Many come to Jesus and the millennium, millennium is ushered in that way. And Jesus returns post-millennium. 
There are some, again, like the first group, that hold to a literal view. Some hold to a symbolic view of the thousand years. And then there is the amillennial view, which is an unfortunate title because it suggests, by, by use of that word or that letter A, that they don't believe in a, a millennium. That's not true. What this group, what this view holds is that the millennium, millennium period started at the ascension of Jesus that we read about in Acts chapter 1. And that the millennium ends when Jesus returns. So obviously this group doesn't uh, hold to a literal view of the thousand years since we're about 2,000 years away from the ascension of Jesus. This is the camp, if you were to place me in a camp, that I would, I would lean. I, I lean here with some hesitation because I don't have, I don't, I don't have um, any one of these views I have issues with, including this issue, or including this, this view, excuse me. I also say this with hesitation because there are great people in every camp who love Jesus, love the word, uh, are faithful to the text, do the best they can. And so I have, I have to always remember that I don't know what I don't know. I see in a mirror right now, as it were, dimly that, that I don't know all things. But if you were to place me in, in a position, this would be where where I would place myself in. And on Friday, when we talk about these views, you'll have two other individuals who are going to take a post-mill and a pre-mill view, and I'll hold to this one and try to defend it. But I'm, I'm looking forward to Friday. I want to learn. I want to hear from others. I also want to approach this topic humbly because differing views on this topic shouldn't divide us. It just shouldn't. I've heard of people leaving churches over the leadership's take on end times. That... Can I say this gently, but it's going to sound harsh? If you do do that, you have too small a view of the gospel. We shouldn't leave churches over our view on the millennium. Our, our view of the gospel should be bigger. I could talk more about that. I could take you to Romans 14 where Paul says exactly that. We, 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 we will divide over things, but let's make the gospel the thing and be about unity because, you know, believe it or not, there's going to be post-mill and on-mill and pre-mill people all in heaven together. Do you know that? Like he, God accepts all of us. So who are we not to accept one another? So I look forward to Friday and, and hearing from others. So, but as I said, I have a certain approach to this text. And so what Matt has invited me to do is just share, why do I believe this? How should we approach this text? So let me give you seven offerings, okay? If you like taking notes, here's the first. I'm going to give you a ton of information today. Talk really fast. You'll just have to listen really fast. Here's the first offering. The thousand-year period of time should be read symbolically. That's my first offering. Like all numbers should be read in the book of Revelation. Let me explain this. The, the book of Revelation, as again, some of you I'm sure know, is written in a genre called apocalyptic. Apoca the word apocalyptic comes out of the Greek. The first word in the book of Revelation in the Greek text is apocalypsis. That word apocalyptic is a word that literally means unveiling. It's an unveiling. It tears the, it tears the cover off and it allows us to, to, to peer into the heavenlies. We believe as Christians that there is a spiritual world. This is, there is a present darkness. And what the book of Revelation, what apocalyptic writing allows us to do is peer into those places. But like all genres, like all genres, apocalyptic writing has characteristics and nuances that need to be honored and understood so as to be interpreted correctly. Like if you read poetry versus a book of history. 
You read poetry knowing the nuances and the rules and regs attached to it. You don't read it in the same way. The problem with us and apocalyptic literature is we have no experience with it. It was popular from the second century BC to the second century AD. There's not much else out there. Revelation is the granddaddy of them all, but it was very popular, popular with the Jewish people. Some of the characteristics, and we certainly see this in Revelation, is heavy use of metaphor, heavy use of simile, heavy use of images, lots of animals in the book of Revelation, lots of beasts, man, lots of angels, lots of things like that. One of the characteristics of it, in addition to those, is its use of numbers meant to point to something grander and fuller. The most often used numbers in the book of Revelation, three, seven, 10, 12, or multiples thereof. 24,000, like our text, 144,000. These are numbers that speak of wholeness, perfection, divinity. They're numbers connected to God himself. Seven is associated with completed creation. The Lord rested from his work on the seventh day. 10 is associated with the 10 commandments, the 10 plagues, and so forth. 12 is, we know this, associated with the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles thereafter. The number six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Seven, attached to God. Six, attached to man. Numbers are to be considered symbolic in the book of Revelation, unless the context warrants otherwise. So, for, I'll give you an example of this. When we read in chapter 21 that the new Jerusalem is going to be 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia in length, width, and height, we aren't to conclude that the new Jerusalem is literally a perfect cube about 1,300 miles high because that would be 12,000 stadia wide and deep. We shouldn't consider that the New Jerusalem is this big, weird Lego piece, really wide and deep and high. But what should we consider it as? What, what, is, what is being told to us? Well, we should conclude that the New Jerusalem is literally perfect, complete, and divine. And additionally, when we read of this perfect cube, our mind should go to the only other perfect cube in the Bible, What's the only other perfect cube in the Bible? The Holy of Holies. Only other one. In addition, we read the New Jerusalem used synonymously to speak of the bride of Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? The church. The New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. In other words, the New Jerusalem isn't a place. It's a people where God resides and dwells with his people in the same way that in the Old Testament text with the temple of, of God, that God met with the high priest one time a year, Yom Kippur, with the high priest in what? The Holy of Holies, the perfect cube. Work of Jesus, curtain torn down. Now we all have access. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will. We will dwell with God in a place of perfection. It's a sweet picture. It's a sweet picture. 
The number 10, by the way, oh, by, yeah, groupings of three as it's connected to numbers emphasize scope, depth, and perfection. So when you see groups of numbers in, in the book, God is holy, holy, holy. God is triune in nature. The number of man in the book of Revelation is what? 666. It's the antithesis. See, the question that the book of Revelation asks is what marks your life? The holiness of God or the, the, the full depravity of man? What marks your life? Holiness or depravity? What marks your life? 777 or 666? And why, that, why we should see this coming out of the book of Revelation is that is consistent with the rest of the Bible. What marks you? That's why when Paul says in Galatians 6, don't cause me any more trouble because on my body I bear the marks of Jesus. All of us are to bear the marks of Jesus. Spiritually speaking, certainly, and perhaps some of us even physically speaking like Paul. The number 10, as mentioned, speaks of completion and fullness, 10 commandments, 10 plagues, and so forth. Three sets of 10 to the... 10 to the power of three, in other words, speaks, as one theologian puts it, a long and or ideal period of time, which shouldn't surprise us. Because we see the symbolic use of the number a thousand in other places in the scripture, and we don't take it, we don't take it literally in other places. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that, is that to be taken literally, that God has a thousand hills and has cattle on all of them? No, what we read are to read in that is, all of the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns it all, perfectly, completely, fully. To, to God, each day is like a thousand years. Is that to be taken literally, or is God sovereign over all? That he's not managed by our time-place continuum. I would offer that as a correct reading of it. That's my first offering. This should be taken symbolically. Here's the second offering. The binding of Satan that we read of in our text in verses two and three should be read as a now but not yet reality. So put your, put your pretty eyes in the text. Take a look at verses two and three. We read there that Satan is seized, right? Notice that word. If you like underlying words, just underline it. Seized and bound for a thousand years. He's thrown into a pit which is shut and sealed. So what should be the obvious question? The obvious question should be, Norm, are, are you out of your mind? How, how can you hold that we're in a millennial period now from the ascension of Jesus to his return and we read here that Satan is bound, sealed, chained? How, how does that, I mean, doesn't Peter himself say in 1 Peter 5, 8 that be alert, he calls us to be alert for Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour? That doesn't sound like bound and chained. Revelation itself makes it very clear that Satan works and wars now, often. So what gives? Well, here's how, how I'll answer the question. I'll take you back to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, post Post his baptism, he initiates the beginning of his earthly ministry with the declaration, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what Jesus does is he proves it. He proves it through signs and wonders, the miraculous. One of the signs and wonders to demonstrate to the people that the kingdom of heaven was at hand was Jesus oft, often used... 
used is a wrong word, often uh, laid out or, or, or demonstration, better word, demonstration of setting free those who were bound by demonic possession. Again and again, he set people free. Now, the critics had an answer for how he did it. The critics said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's how he does it. Jesus responds this way. You can read it on the screen on the sides in Mark chapter 3. If Satan, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, goods unless he first, there's our word, binds the strong man. Now, this is 2,000 years ago. Then indeed, he may plunder the house. So how am I setting these people free, Jesus says? I've bound the strong man. When? When did Jesus bind the strong man? Well, I would say the binding of the strong man begins by his mere appearance. Jesus is the kingdom of heaven by his mere and he's God in flesh. But I think we see it ratched up in the wilderness in his temptation by Satan, and he resists the temptations of Satan, but it culminates where? It, it culminates on the cross. Paul writes this in Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. God, this isn't on the screen, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the, the only weapon that Satan has against you and me. There's only one weapon Satan has against you and me. Our record of debt. That's it. When you come to Christ, that record of debt is wiped away, set free. He has no more weapons. All he has now is accusation, 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 fear, 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 but he has no weapon against you. That's it. And what we read here is this was set aside on the cross, and then what Paul goes on to say is, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed them. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Satan bound. Satan triumphed over. Record of debt washed away. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. So here's my question. This is what we have to wrestle with a little bit. Now, I'll leave this with you to wrestle this week and then come back on Friday if you like. Does, does, here's the question. Does the binding of Satan mean necessarily that he has no ability to work now, prowl as it were? Or could it mean perhaps that he is limited and governed and especially so with the inbreaking of the kingdom by way of the work of, of Jesus? Let me show you something. Just go, go to Revelation 12 really quick, okay? I want you to see this. In Revelation 12, verse 11, we read there, and they, that's the people of God, specifically the martyrs, they have conquered him, that's Satan, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So he's been conquered, went 2,000 years ago on the cross. He's been conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So Satan is conquered by the cross. But take a look at chapter 13, verse 7. We read there, also it was allowed, this is the beast empowered by Satan, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So what is it? Is he conquered 
or does he still prowl seeking to conquer? The answer is yes. He's limited. He's on a leash. But his, the victory over him is complete. But God in his sovereign rule is still allowing him to work and our promise is that all things, even the evil that we see around us, will work together for those who love Christ Jesus. Here's my third offering. Revelation 20's reference to a key should remind us of something much more wondrous and powerful. What's the key I'm referring to? Well, take a look at verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that an angel holds a key that we can assume locks and unlocks this gate to to this bottomless pit or a door of some sort to the bottomless pit. Why is this important to highlight? Well, it's important because keys are a big deal in the book of Revelation. They're a big deal. In fact, if you go back all the way to chapter 1, and I'll take you there in a second, John, the writer of the book of Revelation, it's dictated to him by an angel through that Jesus sends, but John writes, and in chapter 1, he, gets, he sees a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus. And this is what it says that he saw. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I, this is what Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Should remind us of our text. But there's more. In response to a declaration of Peter, Jesus has a conversation with Peter where He asked Peter a question. Who do you say I am, Peter? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says this in Matthew 16. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church in the gates of hell. There it is again. Hades, hell, gates of hell. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys. Here's here's the keys again. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever, uh uh-oh, whatever you bind. Whatever you bind by way of these keys on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let's put all of this together. Let's put all of this together. What should we conclude about these keys and the relationship between between the binding of Satan and so on and so forth? What, What did Jesus give Peter? What does Jesus give all of us that not only sets people free, but binds Satan in the process? What what is it, Tri-City Church, what is it that the gates of hell are unable to resist? What have we been entrusted with, all of us? The answer is the gospel message. The good news story of the person and work of Jesus. The debt pain, grave conquering, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We've been given those keys. That's why Jesus can say in John 20 to his disciples, whoever you forgive will be forgiven, and if you don't forgive, they won't be forgiven. What? How can Jesus say that? Well, what he says to the disciples, he says to us. In what way? Because we have some ultimate power. Not because we have ultimate power, but we've been given a message where we can sit down across the table over a cup of coffee with someone and tell them the gospel story. They respond to it. They repent of their sins. 
they confess Jesus as Lord, they start following, following him, we can say to them, you're forgiven. Not because we have the power to forgive, but we've been given the keys. And, and they now no longer in Hades, that gate's open, they're set free, and Satan can't do anything about it because that key binds him. A fourth offering. Here's a $1,000 word for you today. This is my, my free gift to you, all right? Revelation 20 contains an, ex an example of something called recapitulation. What is recapitulation? Big word. It, it shouldn't scare you. It's a, liter it's a literary device, very common to apocalyptic literature, but we see it in other places as well. It's a style of writing that doubles back on itself. And it fills in the, back, the gaps, it adds light and definition. It may, it may go into places where a story is told from another person's perspective. So in the book of Revelation, you may read of things where the perspective is on the kings and the princes of the world and read about the same story further on, the exact same story from the perspective of perhaps Satan himself. We see recapitulation in other places within the Bible. Probably the most well-known place is the, is the first two chapters of the Bible, where Genesis 1 and 2 double back on themselves. At the end of Genesis 1, you have Adam and Eve um, present. You get to chapter 2, Eve's not there, and you're, you're given more information. It's doubling back. And that's what we, I would offer what we have in Genesis 20, to state it very simply, the book of Revelation shouldn't be read chronologically or in a linear fashion. Does, does it have a beginning and an end? Certainly. But in between, does it go from point A to B to C? No. In fact, the greatest example that would sort of throw down that idea is in, in Revelation 12, right, right in the middle of the book, John sees next something that takes place before the foundation of the world. And he says, what I saw next. In fact, in Revelation 12, he sees December 24th, at least in our calendar, he sees the birth of Jesus. And that's what he says he sees next. As one scholar writes, the, the, question, shouldn't, the question we shouldn't ask as we study Revelation is what happens next, but what does John see next? We have to be reminded as you gather on, on Friday that eschatology is not the study of future things. It's the study of last things. And how does the book of Hebrews start? Long ago, in many ways and at many times, God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, we are in the last days. Now. Are there things coming in the future? Certainly. But there are things regarding these days that we need to take out of Revelation today. And every generation thereof should do the same. As Paul Spilsbury writes in his book, The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, the scenes are not given in chronolog chronological order. They are given in the order in which John saw them. The book does not unfold in a straightforward, sequential way. Many times the action of the visions take us back over territory that we have already covered, introducing new information, changed perspectives, and surprising twists of plot. Now, why am I hammering this down? I, I think we see this in, in chapter 20. Go, go again. Put your eyes down in chapter 20. Let me remind you of what takes place. 
In verse 1, we see an angel coming down from heaven, right? Verse 2, a dragon, serpent, devil, Satan is bound. And as we see in verse 3, he's thrown down. And then additionally, as we've hammered through, we, we have keys in verse 1, which we suggest, I, I've suggested, represents the gospel work of Jesus. So this is all taking place. Okay, all of that's taking place. Now keep all of that in mind. I know I'm making you work hard, but go back to chapter 12. And let me read something for you in verses 7 to 11. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. I would suggest this is pre-creation of the world. This is the fall of Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And look at verse Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him, we read this before, by the blood of the lamb and by the wor word of their testimony for their love, they love their life, not their life, excuse me, even unto death. So he's been conquered, thrown down, right? Great, end of story. Look at verse 17. What does the defeated dragon do? Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's followers of Christ, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Conquered, thrown down, and what does he do with his time? He makes war on the saints. My suggestion to you is that's Revelation 20 as well. War is all over the place in the book of Revelation, all over the place. Chapter 9, chapter 11, 12, 19, 20. I would offer it's the same war. The war that's taking place right now. Because we do not war against flesh and blood, do we? But against what? The principalities and the powers of this present darkness. I think we're getting in vivid cover that colored that taking place in chapter 20. A fifth offering, a couple more. I'm giving you seven. It's a perfect number, a perfect amount of offerings. All right, you're lucky. I'll do this one very quickly because it's not fair to you because for you to really appreciate this, you should have studied chapter 19 and, and that's just not fair to you. All I will say coming out of chapter 19 is there, there's a battle there that, that I believe is being viewed through the lens of the captains and the princes and the kings. Chapter 20 is the power behind them, the beast behind them. But what stands out is that as you can see in verse Verse 18, everybody is defeated in this battle. All of humanity, there is no one left. It's final. Yet, in chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, after this 1,000-year imprisonment, Satan is released to deceive the nations. My question is, who's left to deceive? If they've all been removed in chapter 19... My answer is, this is the same battle, just different perspectives. It's a, an example of recapitulation, doubling back, giving further insight. A sixth offering, and then we'll wrap up with some encouragement to you in this. The sixth offering is this, the New Testament's theme of protection 
in the midst of persecution with a burst of intensity at the end is again hinted at here in chapter 20. Take a look at verse 3 of our text. Uh, Again, Revelation 20. And they threw him into a pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After this, he must be released for a little while. So Satan is released for a little while. What is this? Well, think big picture with me. The, The consistent promise in the New Testament is that those marked by the Lamb are protected, not from persecution, but in and through persecution. They may be even persecuted to the point of death, but their faith is secure. Nothing can snatch us from the hands of God. But what we also read in the New Testament is that there will be an escalation of the persecution against the church that will reach a place of unparalleled calamity. This is depicted in different images in the book of Revelation with the use of things like seals and trumpets and bowls. And what you see in the book of Revelation is calamity comes, and the first time it comes, it affects one-fourth of of people, then one-third, and then later with the trumpets, one-half. The reason why I bring this up and the reason why I feel so secure in doing so is because Jesus affirms this idea. And he, you know what image Jesus uses? Birth pains. That the calamity will escalate, escalate like birth pains. I, I've never given birth, but I've watched someone give birth twice. And I've seen how these start. And the first one is, ooh, I, I felt something. Then they become more frequent and more severe, and then finally, a baby, and it's great. That's the image Jesus uses. So on the one hand, in Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus says things like, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So there's wars, rumors of wars. Hey, it's going to happen. Don't be surprised. But the end is not yet. But then later in the same chapter, and we're going to be looking at this chapter next week. If you have me back, we'll see what happens. But then a few verses later in the same chapter, Jesus says this, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. It will be like a dragon is set free, penned up and given a little bit of time. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. False Christs, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And it's not possible. So put it all together. There are things going on, not good things, wars, famines, pestilence, deception, mayhem, but there is an unleashing, a short burst at the end where the calamity will reach unprecedented levels. Again, I think that's what we're seeing in Revelation 20. Satan is limited. He's restrained. But at the end of the church age, he is is freed up for a short period of time. The chains will be removed. Can you imagine unchained, like just a wild animal, penning up a wild animal, limiting them, just thrashing in their cage, 
and then setting them free? Just an animal. Can you imagine Satan himself being limited, chained, being set free, the anger, his desire to kill the saints, destroy them? It shouldn't be a surprise that it, it ends quickly. It's this idea that Dennis Johnson, a, a commentator, writes, the time between Jesus' ascension and return may take longer than we think, but end much quicker than we assume. Something to think about. Here's my last offering. Clear text in my humble opinion, in the New Testament, on the end of the age, support my reading of chapter 20, in my humble opinion. You see, this is the only place in the Bible, the entire Bible, where we read of Jesus reigning for a thousand years. This is it. But there are lots of places in the Bible that speak about the end of the age. My, my encouragement is don't read those clearer texts Those many texts through the lens of Revelation 20, read Revelation 20 through the lens of those other texts. That's just good study practices. That's good hermeneutic. I know some could say, well, maybe Revelation 20 is giving us new information. That that, could be. It could be that way. Uh, But I'm doubtful because the book of Revelation doesn't give us anything new. Anything new. It just tells it in different ways. Just tells it in different ways. So what do other texts say? Well, Hebrews 9, and I'll end with these couple of texts, and, and like I said, encourage you as you head on out. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 tells us this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is my biggest issue with premillennialism. Because the premillennial view is that a thousand years begin, and at the end of that thousand-year period, Satan is released and deceives the nations. But here we read that Jesus returns not to deal with sin anymore. Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, you could read these texts and go, well, they just didn't want to add the thousand years there. They just skipped over it. You can fill it in yourself. Take Revelation 20 and fill it in. Could be. Like I said, it could be. I don't know what I don't know. But I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. My time is done. My time is done. So as I close, I, I want to close by assuming a big question that some of you have up to this point. Who cares? Like Norm, really? Like who cares? Pre, ah, post. Like it's all going to work out on the end. Who cares, man? My response to you is that we all should care. We all should care. And here's why. The book of Revelation paints in wonderful images and pictures of realities that are true in our lives if we are in Christ. Like wonderful pictures. Here's how I would, let's say I own Coca-Cola, okay? Like I own Coca-Cola and I wanted to, 
get somebody to put a 30-second commercial together to tell the world how refreshing Coke is, why they should drink Coke every day. It's healthy for you and wonderful for you, and it'll, it'll quench your thirst. Now, I could go to an advertising you know, firm, give them some cash. They could come up with a 30-second commercial that depicts a, just a guy talking to a camera saying, drink Coke, it's refreshing. It's a good message. It's what I want to get out there. Coke, drink it, it's refreshing. Or, or, they could come back with a 30-second commercial that shows this desert, heat, hot sun, just pounding down, desert, scare, not scarecrows, uh, what are those birds? Vultures everywhere. Snakes, right? The whole thing, right? Just hot. And there's a man, been in the desert a long time, scraggly clothes, long hair, dust, lips are chapped, just going through the desert. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, an oasis, and there's this ice chest full of cans of Coke. And he grabs one, condensation on the Coke can, pops it, slugs the whole thing back. Ah, that's Revelation. That's what Revelation is. There are lots of places in the Bible where you can read, drink Coke. It's refreshing. That's not what Revelation is. Revelation is a blessing. If you love art, if you love song, if you love the creation around you, if you like advertising, if you're moved, you love this book. Because what this text, just Revelation 20, what I just t took you through, what it tells us is first, it reminds us of the power of the cross. Yes, we have an enemy. He's furious. He hates us. He hates us, but he's thrown down. He's bound up. He's defeated and he's conquered by the blood of the lamb. That's what it tells us. And by faith in the Blood of the Lamb, we can conquer too. In fact, we're more than conquerors because of the blood of the Lamb. That's the picture. That's the image. It also reminds us, lastly, of our position now. Where are we now? Well, what is this millennial period? Jesus reigns right now. He's our King of Kings now. All authority on heaven and earth is mine now. Seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning now. Where are we? We're reigning with him. That's our text. We're reigning with him. And if you die before he returns, first resurrection, you go and are in the presence of Jesus. <laughs> so sweet. So sweet. And reign there. But we here now, while we live here, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? We're seated with him in the heavenlies now. So certain is our salvation. Power of the cross, our position now, painted in vivid colors. It's fantastic. We should love this book. Don't be scared of it. It's a gift to us. Let me pray. Ah, Father, thank you for this for this letter. Thank you for this revelation, this unveiling, allow us, allowing us to see things, see wonderful things, to glimpse into heaven, to see the defeated one, to be reminded of who we are in you because of you now, if we truly have come to a place of salvation where we have been covered by the, the blood of the lamb and our lives bear, bear testimony of such. I thank you for this. I thank you that so secure, so secure is our future that it can be spoken of in present tense terms. We are seated now with you. 
Thank you. And I would be amiss, Father, if I didn't pray. I didn't pray for those who perhaps haven't come to you, that their lives are marked not by the holiness of God, covered by the blood of Jesus, but marked by the world around them. I pray that they'd come to you, come to you, say yes to you, so that they one day, if you so tarry, will experience, they will experience the first resurrection, looking forward to the second when we are people, both body and flesh, spirit, fully redeemed, fully redeemed. So I pray for those who haven't come yet to you that today would be the day. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen.